Well, good morning. So glad to see you on this uh, Mother's Day. It's a, it is a great Mother's Day. Uh, I mean, uh, what a day to celebrate those that loved us and we love. It's wonderful, and yet it is. Brian's right. This is a difficult day for some for a variety of reasons, and I appreciate, uh, Brian, your, your prayer in that regard. Thank you. Um, we are... Uh, we're finishing today a series on the church. And um, what we have found is that, number one, the church belongs to Jesus. It's not ours. Sometimes we act like it's ours, and we think we can behave any way that we want to toward the church. But in reality, it isn't ours. It belongs to the Lord, and we follow him in what he wants to do with his church. Uh, we also look at uh, the leadership of the church, uh, elders, the biblical mandate for elders, and uh, the, the, the place of elders in the church. The church then uh, approved elders uh, among this congregation, and now they're functioning, I, I guess. Is that right, Brian? They're, they're working. So, amen to that. And then... Uh, Last Sunday, <clears throat> the subject was uh, baptism. The Lord has given to his church two special means for worship. And these means are reenactments of the gospel. The first being baptism, which you only need to do once in your life. But we do this as an act of believers witnessing to our relationship with Christ. And then today, I'd like to talk to you about the repeated uh, ordinance that we take part in, and that's the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Some people call it communion. Some even call it something called the Eucharist, which means the blessing. So that's where we're, we're going. Uh, but rather than start like in Matthew where Jesus is celebrating his last Passover meal with his disciples, I'd like to go back to the roots of that. What was Jesus actually doing there? Uh, and is there some significance for us? Well, of course, uh, there is. Jacob was a heartbroken man. He had 12 sons. The 11th was his favorite, unfortunately. Parents should never have favorites, but uh, Jacob did. And that 11th son named Joseph was uh, the envy of his brothers. Now, when, at one point, the brothers came and told Jacob that his son had died and showed him the bloody coat that he had given him, showed him the bloody coat that, as proof that Joseph had died. And so, in reality, he had not died, but instead, his brothers had sold him into slavery to a caravan that was headed toward Egypt. Now, in Egypt, Joseph endured incredible hardship. 
I mean, we sang about God is working often behind the scenes. That was the case here. I mean, it just looked horrible. The condition of his life in Egypt was absolutely, uh, I mean, it was abysmal. But uh, God was working behind the scenes. God was getting to him to where exactly what he needed to do and be. And by the way, that's for, true for you. God is working in your life even when you don't see him at work, don't feel him at work, uh, or don't even recognize his hand. He is working in your life, moving you to his will for your life. Now, the Pharaoh noticed through a series of circumstances, noticed that Joseph had extraordinary ability. He was honest, he was uh, a good leader, and he was wise. And so Joseph was given a place of trust, responsibility, and authority. And that authority and responsibility grew until finally this former slave was uh, second only to Pharaoh in the leadership of the country. Well, as time passed, Egypt came into a famine. We don't know that's because of uh, crop failure or drought or some kind of plant disease. We really don't know what happened here, but somehow they were involved in a famine, which was not unusual for these Middle Eastern countries as they suffered from years of deprivation of water. And so Joseph, knowing that something like this could happen, Joseph made an important, a strategic decision in that he would stockpile grain, enough grain to keep the people of Egypt alive during this time of uh, famine that would occur. And so he did. He put more and more uh, grain back to feed his people. Very, very wise man in doing that. Well, as that was happening, the famine also came to Israel. Remember, Egypt is, is in the south, and then Israel is north of Egypt. And so the same famine struck the, the northern area, the Israel and, and Syria. And as that was going on, as this famine struck, there in Israel, there was an old man named Jacob and his 11 boys. They were starving to death. Them and their families were all starving to death. I mean, it was a desperate situation. So they heard that Food had been stockpiled in Egypt. They made this, this long journey to Egypt and to meet with the Pharaoh to see if there was any way that they could uh, buy some of that grain that had been stockpiled. Well, rather than go to the Pharaoh, they were taken to this man named Joseph. Remember that Joseph was the son of Jacob, and remember he was the 11th of these boys, and that they had all lied to their father, saying that he had died. They're standing now before Joseph, 
They don't recognize him. The years have gone by. He's changed. They've, they're changed. And, uh, and so they don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And into that setting, we have a picture, an amazing picture of forgiveness and restoration. As Joseph says to his brothers, 50th chapter, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And let's remember that. What the world may mean for evil, what people may mean for evil against you. God is still at work. He's still at work in the background. And understand that what you're going through will have an ultimate purpose. And there is an ultimate good that God has in mind. All right, that being so, let's look at Exodus, the first chapter. Exodus chapter number one and verse six. Exodus one, six. So we're skipping forward some years, and it says this, that then Joseph died, and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Uh, that, you know, he's projecting the worst possible scenario that could happen. So the years have passed. Israel, the people of Israel who have moved to Egypt begin to increase in population. They were talented people. And because of that, because of their numbers and their talent, they grew in authority as well. Recognizing this, the Pharaoh made a decision, and that decision would be to neutralize the threat of the Israelites. The Pharaoh enslaved them, of course, into slavery. The following years were brutal years. I mean, impossible demands were made on them. I suppose that many of them died. It was an incredibly difficult time in their slavery. And this suffering that went on, went on for 350 years. I mean, well, there's nothing in our country that we can even, uh, I mean, compare to that. This, this slavery went on for 350 years. Now, I hope you know the story. God rose up a man. And that name, that man's name was Moses. I'd love to tell you his story, but there's not time. God rose him up, and God said, go tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. 
and then lead them out of Egypt and their captivity to their freedom in the promised land. And so Moses did exactly as God had instructed him. He went to the Pharaoh and said, the God of heaven and earth demands that you let his people go. The Pharaoh resisted. And to get the Pharaoh's attention, God sent 10 plagues on to Egypt. Include, and in that, everyone became more and more severe. God will often work in our lives to gain our attention. When we've wandered away, God will work to gain our attention. He may use many different methods, but as far as the Pharaoh was concerned, there were ten plagues that came. They were the water turned into blood, and there was an infestation of frogs, and then lice, or it may have been gnats. We're really not sure about that. Then there was the infestation of flies. Wouldn't you hate that? And after that, the livestock died or became ill. After that, they developed boils on their skin. See, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Then destructive hail fell from heaven, destroying crops and destroying homes. And after that, a terrible, unusual darkness fell on the land. And still, the Pharaoh would not budge. After going through all of that, you would think that maybe he would get a clue that it was time to change what he was doing, but he didn't. He would not budge. And so the 10th plague was sent, by far the most severe of all of them. It says this in chapter 12 of Exodus and verse number 12, 12, 12, says, this is God speaking, I, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, an appointed night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you of the sacrificial animal now. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a uh, shall be for you a memorial day. See, they have their memorial day. And that day was a commemoration of the Passover. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Let me go into more of that in just a minute. And then verse 23. For the Lord will pass 
through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, the lintel is the top part of a door frame, the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter, the, the death angel to enter the house and to strike you. All right, pretty severe kind of stuff. It was a night of terror in Egypt. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say this, but I've always imagined that you could hear the cries of parents as they grieved. It echoed through all of Egypt. Now, God made provision, and that provision was that a sacrificial animal's blood would be taken. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, there are many times that God called for sacrificial, uh, for a, a sacrifice to be made, to bring forgiveness, to bring uh, the blessings of God. Well, the sacrificial animal's blood was to be taken and smeared on the lintel and the doorposts. I've often imagined what that was like. I mean, can you imagine some Jewish lady, she comes home from Walmart and she, and she looks at her husband as he's smearing blood on the door. What are you doing? And he says, well, God says to smear this blood on the door and then we'll all be protected on the inside. And she says, yeah, right. Uh, uh, what's going on? And he says, no, we're supposed to do this. And he said, have you, she said, have you considered curb appeal when we try to sell this thing? <laughs> well, uh, sure enough, that night they were spared. And finally, the Pharaoh relented. And that night, the Israelites packed up everything that they were supposed to have that God had instructed them to have, including unleavened bread. And they headed out under Moses' leadership uh, to reach for the promised land. Now, from that point on, God said, every year on the same day, there is to be a commemoration of the passing over of the death angel sparing the lives of the Israelites. The sacrificial blood was allowed by God to bring their forgiveness, their salvation, their protection. And that brings us to 1224, Exodus 1224. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, as he has promised, you shall keep this service, the observance of Passover. And you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over our houses, uh, the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And 
the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Did you know that's how Passover got started? That's what Jesus was doing with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He was celebrating that commemoration through symbols that God had given to the people of Israel that annually they should remember the sacrifice that had been made for them. Now, let's skip ahead 1,500 years. And we come to Matthew 26 and verse number 17. I know you're tired looking up verses, but this is a good one. So you might, might want to follow along. Matthew 26, 17. It says this. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the best we can tell unleavened bread has to do with being in a way a synonym for Passover. And that's how it's used here. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, the rabbi says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Time now is ticking. Uh, the, the time of his arrest is growing closer and closer. Jesus knows that. And so during the meal, the Passover meal, in Matthew 26, verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Take, eat, this is my body. Let me just briefly point out. Jesus was in his body. He was talking. And when he said, this is my body, he's talking about symbolically, this represents my body. And the wine is going to represent my blood. So what Jesus is talking about is representation here. And so going on. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take Eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, Uh, Jesus has gathered his disciples together, and their purpose is to celebrate the greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament, that being the Passover and the release from uh, captivity of all the people of Israel. So they're remembering that, but now we see that that redemption that had happened 1,500 years before, that redemption was actually uh, uh, and should be seen as an anticipation of the ultimate redemption. 
You see, the, the redemption under Moses is just a picture of what ultimately God would do by sending Jesus, the Passover lamb, to die in our place. And so Jesus, during this event, dur during this meal, Jesus took the unleavened bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this, this is my body. And he took the, the, the uh, wine and said, this is my blood. And these are the symbols. And yearly, daily, however often you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so that's how we come upon the Passover and Jesus' last meal before his crucifixion. Jesus was using that for them to understand the coming redemption that was about to be theirs, but also for us. You see, communion, Lord's Supper, may be the very height of Christian worship because in it we are remembering the greatest sacrifice ever made to bring about forgiveness and eternal life. Uh, it is in this, the Lord's Supper, that, that our, our redemption and the act of, of calling to mind the death of Jesus on the cross becomes all the more precious to us. Uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, we should never take this in a haphazard manner. We should never be indifferent. We shouldn't see it just as a ritual. It's not just a ritual. It's not something to be taken lightly. It is with the greatest reverence that we approach the Lord's Supper. And we approach the Lord's Supper because... We approach the Lord's Supper because of the incredible importance that his death played in our salvation. So when you eat the Lord's Supper, take the elements when you drink the, the wine of the Lord's Supper, please understand really what you're doing. While you're doing it, first look up. God's personal. God is there. God is always here. But we see him so very clearly in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Look up, recognizing that you're taking this, but you're taking it not only to celebrate in your heart, but to glorify God in a lost generation. You are saying to the world, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I know that he died on the cross. Uh, Jesus is present, so look up as you worship him. Look up and recognize the greatness of your God and the presence of your God. But don't only look up, look back to the cross. We can never fully appreciate the significance of what Jesus did on that cross or the pain involved on the, in that cross. You see, Jesus not only endured the, the flogging, the beating, he not only endured the, the terrible embarrassment of, 
of his situation, but Jesus also, see, Jesus is also going to die on that cross, a real death, not just a symbolic death. A young man, 33 years old, is about to die for us. It, it, he is the, the ram at Abraham's altar. And he is the Passover lamb. And he is the sacrificial lambs on the day of atonement. Over and over and over again, we see this throughout the Old Testament. God preparing a way for the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. So when you look to the cross, understand that this is the culmination of the redemptive work of God from the very beginning of creation to the very end. And so not only look up, not only look back, but look around. As you're taking the elements of the Lord's Supper, look around. What do you see? You see other believers as they're opening, uh, openly declaring the Lord's death. You see your brothers and sisters as they're worshiping the Lord. Be encouraged by the fact that you sit, stand among a, a congregation of people who would say, I love the Lord. I recognize what he's done for my life. And I've come to worship him. And again, your brothers and sisters together, this is not a business. This is a family. This is a family as we watch each other as we worship. And then finally, look within. In fact, that's where it really should start at this point. Look within. Uh, do, it says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, and And we must share this caution. Whoever eats... Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I've got to admit that after decades of studying it, I cannot tell you that I fully appreciate all that that means. Except to say, the Lord is clearly telling us that this is not to be taken as a uh, in a ritualistic manner. It is not to be taken with indifference. Let's do this and let's get going. Okay? That's not how this should be treated. Uh, you, should, uh, you should treat this, you should approach this with a repentant heart. Ask God to show you what sin there is in your life that has not been repented of. Ask the Lord to reveal to you actions, uh, lack of actions, attitudes, words, habits that you in, are involved in that are not honoring God. So this is a time for you to repent of your sins. That's one of the glories of the Lord's Supper. It's a time that we come together to straighten things out. And not only between us and God, but us and one another. That's the way this works. We are not only to be right with God, but to seek to be right with, un with one another.
Not to have an ungodly attitude of unforgiveness. So, as you approach the Lord's Supper, please remember that this is the most, one of the most sacred acts that the Lord has us as believers take part in. This is a reenactment of his death. This is the recognition that our redemption has come. This is that God has opened the door and made a way for us. If you've not received Christ as your Savior, understand that the Lord's Supper is really not for you. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to in any way be rude, but it's really for believers. That, that's who does this. Believers are to take the Lord's Supper. But if you have not yet received Christ, you listen to the testimony of what he's done for you even now. So we would plead with you to today, as this church is recognizing the death of Jesus, and we also know the resurrection of Jesus, as we do this, receive the testimony of the people around you. And we pray that today would be a day when you turn from the desire to, to be in charge of your life to giving control of your life to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. If you're not a member of this church, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to be reminded of the allness, the togetherness, the family of God as we partake together in the Lord's Supper. Let it be a testimony to you that this is the time for you to quit dating the church. Make a commitment to the church. Become part of the family of God. And then if, uh, and make that commitment to becoming a member of the church. And then finally, may we all seek to repent and prepare our hearts for the work that Lord has for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this amazing example of the death of Jesus that we've been given. Father, I, as I look back across my life, I'm afraid that all too often I have not taken this with the seriousness that it deserves. We recognize this as a solemn, as a solemn uh, practice. And Father, we pray, Lord, we pray for your blessing when your people worship. In Jesus' name, amen.